Well, I want to give a special welcome to all of you joining us at Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us this morning. We're in a series that we're calling FaceTime, Conversations with Jesus. And as you read through the Gospels and even other parts of the New Testament, you discover that Jesus is often in relationship, in dialogue, in conversation with other people. And when Jesus is in conversation with other people, he challenges and he comforts, but everybody leaves changed. And our goal in the series is that we will be transformed as well as we recount what happened in those conversations and we relive them in our experience together. Well, since it's the middle of summer and the days are long and it's nice and warm outside and vacations are either happening, happened or about to happen, we thought this would be a perfect morning to talk about sickness and death. Actually, our account that we're going to look at this morning is an account of illness that actually ends in death, but there's celebration and joy that follow those particular accounts. So I must be talking about John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 11. If you're using your phone, you can go to Version, look up John 11, find it on your tablet. Um, and here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I would encourage you to do that when you have uh, some spare time this afternoon or whatever. I'm going to read parts of it. So I'm going to read for a little while. Then I'm going to jump to the next section. If I remember, I'll tell you what verse I'm jumping to. If I forget, see if you can find it and follow along when you get there. All right. John chapter 11. This is the account of Lazarus's death. And Jesus interacts and has a conversation with Lazarus's two sisters, Martha and Mary. So follow along beginning in John 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Now jump down to three. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. That's kind of interesting. Jump down to verse 21. After arriving, Martha's the first to come up and greet Jesus, and here's what happens. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world. Now jump down to verse 32. Mary now comes. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more, once more was deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, when he, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now that's kind of a familiar incident, but in case you haven't realized, there are a number of surprises at this particular funeral. I'm guessing you've never been to a funeral quite like this one. Jesus shows up at a funeral, the funeral ends, but then there's an outcome that's maybe unexpected that comes. There are a number of twists and turns and surprises through the story, and I'm going to look at just a couple of them with you. First, let's, uh, let's talk about the situation, the situation. Lazarus, his two sisters, Martha and Mary, live in a town called Bethany. Now, Bethany's pretty close to Jerusalem. And just for your understanding, just a little while before this in John's gospel, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples and the religious leaders try to kill him. He was saying some things, making himself out to be someone that they didn't think he was. And so rather than deal with all of that hypocrisy and deal with all that heresy, they decide they're going to kill Jesus. Jesus slips away and he retreats. Well, now he receives word from Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters, that Lazarus is sick in Bethany, which is dangerously close to Jerusalem where all the trouble was transpiring. Well, when Jesus receives word, the word is Lazarus is sick. And just in case you haven't realized it, or if you watch lots of, lots of televangelists late at night, doesn't that seem like an oxymoron depending on the preachers you listen to? Lord, the one you love is sick. If you listen to some people, it's like, wait a minute, if the Lord loves you, you never get sick. If he doesn't love you, you get sick. But if you get sick, he must, how's that working? Lord, the one you love is sick. And it goes a step further. The guy's not only sick and Jesus loves him, he dies. How does that fit with the script? What's going on? They send word, Lazarus, the one you love is sick. And John tells us repeatedly, Jesus really does love Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. In fact, the word used for Jesus' relationship with them is only used of Jesus' relationship with John. Now, a lot of people in Jesus, they felt a special love from Jesus. He kind of connected with them. But specifically, it's John, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're the four that come up with really experiencing this awesome love of Jesus. Why then, when Jesus learns that Lazarus is sick, does he wait two days? That doesn't seem to make sense, right? If you get an urgent email or a text from somebody that someone you love deeply is sick, you don't wait two more days. You get going to be with them. And even if it's slightly dangerous, you don't wait two more days. Jesus hears, in fact, the language actually is, Jesus hears that the one he loves, Lazarus, is sick. 
Therefore, he waits two more days. That seems like a non sequitur. How does it work? How in the world does Jesus love somebody, hears that they're sick, and then wait two days to go? And what does he do while he waits? We're not told. But I think we can make an educated guess. At the end of the account, um, Jesus says, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me when I pray. I'm saying thank you for hearing me for the benefit of those listening here. What was Jesus doing in those two days? I think it's a pretty good guess that Jesus was actually praying. He's praying for the situation. He's praying for the strength and the stamina to do what needs to be done. Jesus is praying for Lazarus and Jesus is praying that God's plan be unfolded as God wants it done. Well, before we move on and see what happens, and we just read it, so you already know, let me make a couple points of application that sometimes we forget or at least need to be reminded of. I mentioned it last week, but I'm not sure if you were all listening. Jesus is unmanageable. Remember we said that? Well, here's another example. Jesus is unmanageable. Um, The sisters send an urgent message to Jesus that Lazarus, the one he loves, is sick, and Jesus waits two days. Here's my guess. The sisters and Lazarus have probably exhausted other options. We're not told, but I'm guessing they probably had the physicians come already. They probably had the doctors stop by, and Lazarus has more than the sniffles or a bad cough. Lazarus is getting sicker by the minute. They then send an urgent appeal to Jesus, and when Jesus gets the message, he waits two days, and he prays, he's unmanageable. In fact, you can tell the sisters are, if they're not ripping mad, they're at least a little ticked off. They both give Jesus the if only. Look, Lord, we know you kind of run your own life, but if you were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. They both say, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. In other words, why the heck didn't you come As soon as you got the urgent request, then we wouldn't be at a funeral. You could have done something about it before Lazarus died. Jesus is unmanageable, right? We want him to show up. We want him to fix the problem according to our schedule, according to our priorities. Jesus doesn't play those games. I was thinking about that a little this past week. Eagles started training camp this week. Do you notice that? And expectations are at a fever pitch. That'll make the disappointment all the bigger later on in the year, I'm guessing. And I was thinking about it. In the old days, they used to have hard training camps. Remember? I mean, like real training. They put pads on, hurt each other. Now it's illegal to tackle to the ground. They wore pads one day and they can't tackle people to the ground. What is this? Anyway, but even though you can't tackle to the ground, I'm guessing if you were to interview most of the players, they they would still say, yeah, training camp is not our favorite thing. And if you were to say, well, what do you think of the coaches? Here's probably what they'd say. Yeah, we kind of like the coach, but their main job is to hurt us and make our lives miserable. What do the coaches say? Let's run that drill again. Let's run that play again. We're going to do it till you get it right. Over and over and over. Into the weight room. Put more weight on the bar. Run the sprints again. Even though you can't tackle to the ground, hit them and make them know you're there. What are the players thinking? Coaches must hate us. Their job is to make our lives miserable. But what are the coaches actually doing? The coaches are seeking to bring out the best in the players and the coach is seeking to knit them into a coherent team. 
you know what? That's kind of what Jesus is doing. And even though we may not be able to manage the details, we do know the bigger picture. Jesus desires to bring out God's intention in us, the best in us, and he wants to knit us into a team. And just like coaches need to kind of challenge the will of the players and do things that the players wouldn't choose in order to accomplish that. So Jesus at times need to kind of challenge us and push on us and do things that we wouldn't want done in order to accomplish the biggest goal that we certainly agree with. Now you may not understand that about coaches, but if you have kids, I know you understand it there. No parent in his or her right mind would give the kid everything the kid asked for because the kid would kill himself or you'd kill him. Kids don't know what they need. They don't know what they want. Parents have to kind of take the request, tweak the request a little bit, give them something better, give them something different. That's exactly what Jesus does. The perfect parent, the absolute perfect coach. He's unmanageable because he's smarter than we are. He's unmanageable because we're infantile in our perspective and really don't know how life should go, but God does. And so God challenges us and our will because he's a lot smarter than we are and his main goal will be accomplished in the end. So here we see Lazarus, or Lazarus, Jesus, the one you love is sick and the sickness ends in death, but it helps us understand the bigger story even better. Well, that's part of the situation. Well, the conversations then come from the situation. There are two conversations that happen in the account. And as I've said already, both of the conversations start with exactly the same statement. First Martha approaches, then Mary approaches, and they both make the same exact statement. You can check it out. In verse 21, Martha starts by saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, you messed up. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, a little, a little ways down, Mary says the same exact thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They both say exactly the same. I'm guessing they kind of talked about it, right? And as Lazarus is getting sicker, where's Jesus? Is he coming? Eventually Lazarus dies. He's been dead for four days by the time Jesus shows up. Don't you think they had a talk before then? You know, if Jesus was here, this wouldn't have happened. Jesus could have healed him. We, we saw him heal blind people. We heard stories about Jesus doing these radically miraculous things. If Jesus had been here, this disaster wouldn't have happened. And so they both come to Jesus separately and say the same exact thing. But interesting, Jesus responds in very different ways. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus responds, Mary says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he responds in a completely different way. Why, after the same statement, does he respond in such different ways? Well, let's first see how he responds. Here's what Jesus says to, uh, to Martha. Martha gets a theology lesson. So Martha comes, she's despairing, right? Grieving over her brother's death. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus teaches her theology. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Not only gives her a theology lesson, he gives her a test. Do you believe it? Check the box. Do you believe it? A, B, C, Ds. Make sure you fill in the right circle. A theology test. And some of you are kind of like that. When difficulties come, heartache comes, relation, relational disaster, something goes bad in your life, you scour 
the Bible for meaningful data. You want to know something. And so you need your intellectual, you know, it scratched a little bit and you do Bible study. You talk to people that you think know a little bit more than you. You are going to intellectually grapple with the issues and you're hoping your heart will get the message from your head. Some of you are wired like that. Martha must've been wired like that. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life in answer to her statement. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Well, this is uh, one of the I am statements of John. So if any of you uh, John students out there, you know that John, the apostle John builds his gospel around seven I am statements. Some of them are weird. I am the door. What? I am the bread. I am the way, the truth, and life. This is kind of the climactic one as we now move toward um, Jesus' death. Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, lots of scholars and commentators say this is kind of the climactic I am statement that leads to the rest of the book. So Jesus gives the I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice Jesus does not say, Martha, don't worry. I will raise Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't say that. If you trust in me, I will do this. I can give life. He doesn't say he will do. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not making a statement of what he will do. He's making a statement of who he is. He is the giver of life and the sustainer of life. This is a statement that Jesus is God. And he asks Martha, do you believe this? Do you know this? Now you do have to understand if you want to kind of work through, since all you theologians out there, if you want to work through the details you discover, Jesus is actually referring to two different kinds of life. For example, that's why he can say, I am the resurrection and the life. If you die, you'll be raised again. That's physical life. So even though your body dies, like Lazarus' body is dead, his body died, he will be raised again. And you know, it's an Eastern religious idea. It is not a biblical idea that we exist in heaven without bodies forever and ever and ever. That is not a biblical idea. The biblical idea is bodies and spirits reunited forever and ever and ever. A resurrection's the end of the story in the new heavens and the new earth, not a body separated from a spirit forever and ever. And so Jesus is using this as an example to say, even though your bodies die, your body will be reconnected again with your spirit and you will live again. That's what's gonna happen with Lazarus. Well, what's the second thing mean then? And whoever believes in me will never die. Lazarus died. Yeah, it's not talking about physical life. This is talking about the life that begins when someone trusts in Jesus. So Paul likes to talk about we're dead in our sin, but by believing in Jesus, we now have life. That life never, ever ends. So when your body dies, you are in the presence of God if you know Jesus, and, and then your spirit reconnected with your body. It never, ever ends. Two different kinds of life in the one statement, and he quizzes, quizzes Martha. So Martha, do you believe all this? She kind of gets the answer wrong, but basically she, yeah, yeah, I, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. But what about Lazarus? That's the first conversation. Now here's the second conversation. Mary comes running up, same statement. Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. So does Jesus whip out the theology text and say, well, Mary, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever believes, believes in me will never die. He doesn't do that. What does Jesus do when Mary goes through the statement? If you were here, 
He cries. He weeps. Martha gets a theology lesson. Mary gets tears. The heck is up with that? Well, Jesus responds differently because the people are different. Martha must have needed more of a theology lesson. Her head is going to work in her heart. Mary needed more of someone to identify with her in her despair. And Jesus goes directly to identify with her heart and he weeps. Now, there's an interesting thing that follows here. And, and that's the verse all the kids like to memorize, right? Because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Okay? You memorize the Bible? Yes, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. You got it. Now, see, you all memorized the verse this morning. But there's a really weird section that follows this. I think we've got the passage up here. Um, and translators have wrestled with it. What's going on? And so I'm going to read it and ask you your repent. Don't yell at your answer. You embarrass yourself. But you just kind of pretend. Play along with me. Um, I'll emphasize the words I'm looking for you, what they mean, and then we'll try to figure out what's going on. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone rolled across the air. See that phrase, deeply moved, used two different times. Now here's what we often think. Jesus is deeply moved. He sees Mary weeping. He sees all the people who love Lazarus and they're grieving with the sister. They're all weeping. And so Jesus is deeply, his heart's just breaking in his chest. And so he weeps. That's not what it means. Deeply moved does not mean sharing their sorrow and, be, and being in despair. Here's the really weird thing that translators don't know what to do with. The word deeply moved means angry. Jesus isn't deeply moved feeling grief and despair, he's ticked off. In fact, the word actually means to bellow in rage. Let me give you an example. One of my favorite places in Florida, you know, kind of beside Disney, is a Gatorland Zoo. How many of you have ever been to Gatorland Zoo? There, we got some Gatorland. Yeah, Gatorland's great. They have you know, hundreds of alligators, crocodiles, all kind of, I don't like to touch any of them, but I like to kind of look at them from the safety of my side of the fence. But this one time I was at Gatorland Zoo was, was fascinating. There was one crocodile, a huge crocodile. Now you do understand crocodiles and alligators are very different creatures. Crocodiles, you can see their teeth. That's how you can know. Alligators, you can't. They're kind of in their mouth. But alligators are much more docile. I don't want to pet them, but they're much more docile. You know, just kind of lay there. It's no big deal. Crocodiles, not so much. Crocodiles have like an attitude, right? You don't want to pet a crocodile. don't want to go near a crocodile. When they wrestle things, they wrestle alligators. They don't wrestle crocodiles, right? Crocodiles are nasty. Well, this one time when I was there, there were a whole bunch of alligators in the pond. There was an alligator, excuse me, a whole bunch of alligators in the pond, a crocodile, a big crocodile, on the land outside the pond. Every time an alligator would try to come out of the pond, the crocodile would stand up, make this like rumbling sound, and the alligator would quickly scurry back into the pond. That's what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus is saying, in a sense, as he's facing our enemy, do you want to get it on? Do you want? You see, where's John's gospel heading? It's, it's heading toward our greatest enemy, which is death, the result of sin. So therefore, what was Jesus praying for those two days before? 
That prayer is very similar to the prayer in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, Jesus is preparing for the battle to come where he will battle against our greatest enemy, sin and death itself. Jesus is now calling the the beginning of the end to begin. And he's angry. And people fight about, what's he angry at? Is he angry at Mary and Martha because they don't believe? I don't think he's mad at angry Mary and Martha. Is he angry at the other people there who don't believe? I don't think he's angry at them. I think Jesus is angry because he stands in the midst of the results that sin brings. God did not design human beings to experience death, to experience sin, relational heartbreak. God didn't design any of that. Jesus stands in the midst of the consequences of sin, and he's ticked off about it. And in a sense, he says, in the face of our greatest enemy, so let the battle begin. And it begins from this point on. So what's the action? Well, you kind of know the action, right? Jesus calls Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. He's really, really dead, right? He didn't just pass out for a little while. He's in the, he's, he's in the cemetery. He's been in the tomb for four days. Martha even said, Martha's the detail one, right? Jesus, excuse me, maybe you don't know this. When somebody dies, they stink after a few days. Don't go calling him out. It's going to stink. Um, Jesus says, roll the stone away. Lazarus, come out. And, uh, you know, popular preachers at times have made the point. And the reason Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth, because if he didn't name, all the dead people would have come out. So he had to name Lazarus, so only the one comes out. All the other guys stay dead. Lazarus, you come out for now. The rest will happen later. And Lazarus, stum- can you imagine being there? Lazarus stumbles out, still wrapped in the grave because he's probably dragging some of the things behind like a mummy come walking out. You know, you've seen the movie, right? He's got the stuff on his face and, oh, take all the bandages off him. Lazarus is alive. Talk about an action. Jesus says, bring it on. Do you want to have this fight? Let's do it. And he, he begins the battle by raising Lazarus. That becomes an illustration of what Jesus himself is going to do at the end of the book and what he promises he's going to do for all of us at the end of the story. That's what's going on. Well, what's the reaction then? Well, the reaction's kind of twofold. The one is completely expected. What's the first reaction? Lots and lots of people say, who is this guy? Whoever he is, we're gonna follow him. We believe, he says he's the Messiah, we believe it. Um, My guess is, if you ever went to a funeral and somebody walked in and like, had the guy get up and walk home, you'd believe something too. So lots and lots of people believe in Jesus. We've never seen this happen before. He not only can heal people of illness and disease and blindness and stuff, he not only can feed people when they get hungry, people that have already died, he can give them life again. Whoever he is, we believe it. We believe it. But there's another reaction, another surprise at the funeral. So from that day on, they, the religious leaders, plotted to kill him. What? Why in the world would the religious leaders want to kill Jesus when he just raised somebody from the dead? Well, if you read a little more carefully, you discover that they held a pretty prominent place in the temple, the community, the religious system, and they were afraid. They were afraid that the Romans would hear 
that Jesus is claiming to be Messiah, little insurrections kind of happening. Romans, for the most part, didn't like these messiahs going around, you know, kind of claiming to be somebody special because Messiah means king. You don't want an alternate king running around. So they decide, hey, we really like our position. We've, we like our place in society and religion. So therefore, we need to get rid of this guy or the Romans are going to get rid of us. Huh, isn't that interesting? They prefer their position and their place more than they prefer believing and following Jesus. And so they plot to kill him. And that's the turning point in John's gospel. In fact, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that if he raised Lazarus, he's signing his own death warrant. If he brings Lazarus to life, he will cause his own death. If Lazarus walks out alive, he will be put into a tomb dead. Jesus knew the story. And Jesus went through it anyway. And so now it's a little simpler to figure out what he was praying about those two days he didn't come. The main battle was about to come. And so rather than Jesus calling Lazarus out and saying to the people, I would have probably said, any questions? Any questions? He doesn't do that. He now begins the ultimate battle for our forgiveness and for our eternal life. Lazarus is the illustration that points to Jesus and Jesus the first fruit that promises to bring all of us that new life forever and ever. So in closing, let me ask you a a question. Like, so what? That's a cool story, right? You believe, I believe Jesus the Messiah, so I'm good. Do you believe this? I got it. I got it. Uh, yeah, do you? How do we respond to this encounter? How do we respond to these conversations? What are you going to do? Well, the first thing, we should respond with worship, obedience, praise, all that kind of stuff. Jesus is the perfect parent, the perfect coach. He knows exactly what's needed. Trust him, follow him. And even though life doesn't always go the way we want, he will bring troubles and tribulations just like parents do, just like coaches do. He knows what he's doing. He's brighter than we are. And follow along. Follow along. But not just that. In the midst of your following, recognize that there are lots of things that we're not going to understand. But since Jesus has taken care of our biggest problem, we can trust him to take care of all of the lesser problems. So let me see if I can explain it this way. This is not a recommendation of how you should spend money or time this afternoon. All right, this is just a statement. A fictitious illustration. Suppose you hit the lottery. $305 million. Remember, tithing's still good, right? right. $305 million, you hit the lottery. Suppose you go and collect your check, you get like half of that, right? You go and collect, it's still a lot of money, go and collect your check. And on the way home, you say, you know what? I'd like to buy my pastor a gift. Just a fictitious store. I want to buy my pastor. And you're driving past a German auto dealer, you know, one with kind of the broken peace sign. And you kind of pull in and and you're looking around and you only want to look at the models that begin with S. 
right? So you're looking around, and you see the S smile, you look around. And so the uh, person comes out and he looks at how you're dressed and, look, and realizes you may not be able to afford this. And he says, can I help you? I want to buy one of these. And the, the car salesman says, you realize that's $110,000. I'll take it. I think he likes blue with tan interior. I'll take it. The guy's a little surprised, but he's happy, right? Get your name on the paper and I'll be back. When can I be? You pick it up in two days. Pick it up. Well, suppose you're driving home from the car dealer. And as you're driving home, the phone rings and here it's the salesman that just sold you the car. And he's finally collected his uh, thoughts and he says to you, hey, uh, you know that car you just bought? I know I got. Hey, for another five grand, we could add some really cool bells and whistles to that car. Question. How would you respond? Would you say, bells and whistles? I just spent $110,000 on the car. Don't you add another penny to that price tag. I'm not paying one cent more. He doesn't even deserve that. That's all you're getting. Is that how you'd respond? Or would you say, I just won 305 million. What's $5,000? You know what? Throw all the bells and whistles on that car. You can find some you don't even have. Put them on too, right? You're not going to nickel and dime the accessories if you're dropping 110 grand for a car. If Jesus gave his life to pay for our sin and to defeat our ultimate enemy, death, is he going to nickel and dime us on the accessories from here to home? I mean, he's already paid the big price tag. Don't you think we can trust him with the accessories along the way? Sometimes the accessories may seem really big to us. They're nothing compared to the ultimate payoff of forgiveness, eternal life, forever and ever. So if you ever need a receipt that you believe and for what you believe in the evidence of it, you remember not Lazarus's resurrection, you remember Jesus' resurrection. And he promises that all who believe and trust in him will live even though they die. And everybody who believes in him will never experience that. Spiritually, we're alive forever and ever in Christ. And physically, our bodies will be reunited with our spirits forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the big purchase. And you can trust him for all the accessories along the way. Let's stand Father, we thank you for these two conversations because, boy, they often reflect our perspective. We live with the if-onlys. Jesus, if only you would have given me this, if only you would have done it sooner, if only you would have kept that for me, if only we trust our coaches, but not our Savior. We trust our parents, but not our God. Lord, help us to realize that your love sometimes comes with troubles, trials, tribulations, but the big goal, to conform us to the image of your son, knowing that you've conquered our greatest enemies and all the accessories that will help to that destination are all of ours in Jesus. Thanks for that, Lord. Help us to live with that perspective in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of broken hearts, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of pain. Thanks for giving us the big picture and the end of the story that makes all the twists and turns understandable and worthwhile. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus.